Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In this lecture, recorded on September 20th, 2015, to honor the exhibition Pleasure and Piety, the Art of Joachim Uteval, 1566-1638, Arthur K. Wheelock, Jr. presents the artist as a master storyteller, virtuoso draftsman, and brilliant colorist. Born and raised in Utrecht, one of the oldest cities in the Netherlands, Uteval embraced the popular international style known as mannerism, characterized by extreme refinement, artifice, and elegant distortion. He remained one of the leading proponents of this style, even as most early 17th century Dutch artists shifted to a more naturalistic manner of painting. Uteval's inventive compositions, teeming with twisted, choreographed figures and saturated with pastels and acidic colors, retained their appeal for his patrons. Uteval depicted risque mythological scenes and moralizing biblical stories with equal ease, yet his strong adherence to a mannerist style would also lead to the eventual decline of his reputation. On view from June 28th through October 4th, 2015, and featuring 37 paintings and 11 drawings, the exhibition sheds light on Utval's artistic excellence and allows him to reclaim his rightful place among the great masters of the Dutch Golden Age. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to the National Gallery. My name's Arthur Wheelock, and I am delighted to welcome you here. Um, Basically, uh, a lecture designed to disabuse you of the notion that the Dutch are a dour um, sort of tea people, always dressed up in black with white collars and, and uh, strict Calvinists. Um, uh, partly true, but not necessarily totally true. And um, so this artist, um, Joachim Uteval, I just want to start uh, with um, a painting um, that I hope most of you have seen the show, been able to see the show, but you will quickly realize that what we're seeing is, doesn't look at all like what uh, the painting actually is like because the painting is only about this big, uh, a little painting on copper. And, um, and as such, uh, it is not, never meant to be in an exhibition. Um, it was meant to be in your private Quarters. It was meant to be held in your hands, a very private little experience, and one that you could absolutely relish in how sexy this little painting is. Um, it is. It is a very, I find it an incredibly engaging work, uh, and if I had to take one home, it could well be this one. It's kind of one of these things that just kind of evokes what um, a passionate relationship between this this really gorgeous woman who is soft and luscious, has a kind of ivory skin, um, very smooth skin, and this muscular guy who's been out in the, in the sun, and you can tell he's got ruddy complexion. Um, the way they kind of look at each other, gaze into each other's eyes, where she's got her glass of wine ready for um, you know, sharing in all sorts of dimensions, um, pushing aside the bed curtains. I mean, there's, there's very little left imagination. This is about the, for him, the guy, the most form-fitting shirt you could ever imagine going right into his belly button. I mean, it's, you know, and then she's holding him tight. She's clasping him um, on his butt and she kind of looks in. I mean, this, it is a very sensual little thing. It is absolutely, and it was meant to be, absolutely meant to be. Uteval, 
Joachim Utevall, who's the artist who painted this painting, wanted you to feel that way. He wanted that kind of passion to be expressed in this painting. And we don't think of Dutch art as having that element. Um, we also don't think of Dutch art as painting gods and goddesses, Mars and Venus, um, who are the two individuals that we are um, able to um, share this moment with. Uh, um, they actually don't know we're watching, but anyhow, it was, uh, that becomes an issue for them later in life, actually. Um, not too much later. Um, but anyway, this is a kind of a painting that Uteval, Joachim Uteval, was painting early in the century. He was painting lots of parties, lots of scenes of people really having a good time. In fact, I don't remember ever at the National Gallery a show that has so many good time moments. Uh, it, is, uh, it is truly a happy show. Even St. Sebastian, I mean, that's a martyrdom. I've never seen a guy getting, you know, tied up and shot with arrows looking so happy. He looks great, and the guy who's tying him up also says, yeah, give me more of this. I mean, this is, I mean, it's a very happy show. Everybody's having a good time one way or the other, and they're having a good time at this wedding party. I mean, this is a real wedding feast. I mean, this is um, Pelis and Thetis, and everybody's coming together and um, sharing their moments, including Mars and Venus. There they are right there in the middle again. Um, if I go back a bit, you have Hercules, we can recognize all sorts of people here. Hercules is welcoming us to the party, coming in um, to scene, and there's Bacchus um, here. You have a satyr who's actually rather aroused to the whole excitement of the event. You have somebody here who's been a little bit too much partying, uh, but there's a, there is a kind of a feeling of kind of overarching um, enjoyment of the central pleasures of this wedding party. I mean, how, what kind of, anybody would want to have a wedding as exciting as this, you know, with everybody nude and, you know, having a good time. Um, to think that this was being painted in the Netherlands is kind of amazing. And as I said, you would certainly think of these guys all dressed up in black and white collars. Well, in fact, the artist who did that was dressed up like that. This is exactly who he was. He was a strict Calvinist. He was a very successful businessman. Um, he ran a flax business. He was so wealthy from all that he uh, did in his business that Carl van Mander, who writes about this period, he writes his wonderful book called the Schilder Book, his Schilder Book in 1604, the artist book, and he writes about Uteval, says, Man, that guy just spent some time painting instead of worrying about the flax business. I mean, what kind of amazing wonders could he create? So he was already seen as somebody, the arts, the, the goddess of the arts, you know, Minerva should be, be spending more time with him because he had this amazing ability to, to make stories, make stories, think of the imagination. This is all about what art was about at that time, the imagination make you engage yourself into this amazing world that these artists would convey. Think and storytelling, and, and how do you make these stories seem real to you somehow or other? The emotional, human emotions part of the story. Well, Utefal was a city on city council. He has all sorts of religious organizations. I mean, he was all this plus an artist. Um, so just because he dresses like that doesn't mean he necessarily is stiff, obviously. You can tell that from the paintings. But also, if you look at his coat of arms behind him, there's this coat of arms up there. 
Now, what is that? A couple of satyrs sitting there um, around the cornucopia. So he really is a kind of a playful sort of guy. And one of the interesting things that uh, we, I mean, nice to do a show of, of an artist you know nothing about. I mean, I think this is all. So the idea that you all have heard, never heard of Uteval before this exhibition, um, there are not that many art historians have heard about him either, really, truly. Um, or we don't know much about him. And we are very fortunate in this show to have worked with um, colleagues from, from Utrecht, which is where he came from, the city of Utrecht, um, Lisbeth Helmus, um, a wonderful colleague in Houston, um, James Clifton, where the show's gonna go next, and also Anne Lowenthal, who was a great expert on Uteval, and really the, we all owe her a lot from what she taught us, but we all recognized when we did this show, we thought about doing the show, well, gosh, you know. We don't know a whole lot about them. Even Anne Lowenthal doesn't, there are lots of big gaps in our knowledge, but certainly nobody out there in the rest of the world has ever heard of this guy. Can't spell his name, you can't pronounce it, you know. It's the same with the Dutch. They don't know much more about it than we do. In fact, when the show opened in Utrecht, there, was, there were articles in the paper saying, nobody's gonna come to Utrecht to see this show. He's better known in America than he is in the Netherlands. This shows you some degree of where he ranks and all this. Anyway. One of the questions that um, a art critic came to Utrecht and asked, um, well, my colleague in Utrecht, Lisbeth, we're concerned about this. So she, she asked somebody who, was, who really was thought about the fact that how do you get people to come to a show that, for an artist she never heard of? What's gonna make them do so? She, they're trying to figure out a, you know, something to, to think about. And he came to, to Utrecht to talk with her about the show, and he said to her, so she never figured out, looked at this, why does Uteval have, showing himself there ready to be paint, why does he have red paint on the end of his brush? Oh, well, nobody ever thought about that. So it was interesting to sort of start and ponder that question, and Lisbeth thought about it and thought about it, and, and actually, in the end, decided that, well, you have red. Red means two things, war and love. I mean, more is more than that, but there are those two elements. So that there is a feeling already that Utefal has this identification with Mars and Venus. The whole thing about their connected, connectability is seen there right in that red tip of paint, the paint on the, red, on the tip of his brush that there is this sort of symbolism of color, which is a very interesting to think about. You think about with Van Gogh and others, but they, it's a long-term thing. People, color has symbolism all the way back. So maybe there's something about that association, even he personally felt with Mars and Venus in his own personality, with satyrs and all that kind of stuff that he had in this coat of arms. But the thing that I think that um, I love about this painting particularly is that there they are, very much embraced and ready to have, uh, can keep going, and Mars still's got his helmet on. <laughs> so when is the right time to take the helmet off? You know, I think he's got a great sense of humor. I think Utebel's got a great sense of humor, and it wasn't, it's not something that's been picked up by many people, except for Gary Trudeau. Um, and so, I don't know if any of you you know, watch the BD do his thing, traveling around the world and going to mixers at uh, 
um, Briarcliff with his helmet on, just to be sure everybody knows he's a quarterback of the football team. So it's, Myers is doing the same thing. There's no question that, that Myers is doing the same kind of thing. I've got my helmet on, you know it's Myers. So there is this identification that um, is um, obviously part of that humor that is in, in this show. So we have at the National Gallery this painting. It's in the exhibition. It's a, a wonderful painting of, by Utteval of, of Moses striking the rock, signed dated 1624. And I just want to um, spend a moment trying to figure out why nobody has ever heard of Utteval. And part of the reason um, is that these paintings look very different, obviously than what we think of Dutch art. This painting came to the National Gallery in 1970, and it came, um, I'm quite sure, as a result of the um, instigation of a great Dutch uh, German, but lived in America, art historian by the name of Wolfgang Steckow. And he and Chuck Parkhurst, Parkhurst was a de deputy director at the gallery, together had made this happen. I just want to really celebrate that moment, 1970, because 1970 was the first, first time in America that a painting by this artist entered a public collection. So nobody looked at Uteval. Nobody thought about Uteval. Nobody collected Uteval before really the 1980s. Virtually every painting in the exhibition that is from American collection, even European collection, except for Utrecht, were acquired in the 1980s, 90s, 2000, I mean, recently. Why on earth? I mean, what, why, why was he excluded from the story, the canon, of what Dutch art is all about? And it really goes back to an, a 19th century French art historian by the name of Eugene Fromentin, not an art historian, but an art critic, a painter and an art lover, um, who wrote a book uh, called the, the Les Maîtres d'Autrefois, The Masters of Olden Times, which was a wonderful, is a wonderful book, and you can still find it's uh, reprinted all the time. It's a fabulous book about old masters um, and spends a lot of time on Dutch art. And as far as he was concerned, Dutch artists of the 17th century, what made them so amazing was that they painted a portrait of the Netherlands. Their paintings, whether it's a Habermann, these are paintings from National Gallery, Habermann on the left, or Paulus Potter. One of his great heroes was Paulus Potter. Um, is they painted reality the way it should be painted. They looked at the world, they captured it, the light, the color, the activities, the lower class, the upper class, the middle class, all the kind of elements of that world. They could do that in a wonderful way. They could paint paintings like this one that has just arrived at the National Gallery. I just want to just a little shout out for a wonderful uh, visitor who's here this fall. So in the Dutch cabinet galleries, um, so artists like Vermeer who could focus in on the interior, the wonderful sense of light, the color. Um, the great hero as, as well as Potter is Rembrandt and the, 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 the humanity of these paintings. That was what Dutch art was all about. The artists like Uteval, like Hendrik Goltzius, like Abraham Blumart, the artists at the beginning of the century, he says, they are not Dutch. He really literally says, they are not Dutch. They're too uh, something, Italian or something. They don't belong here. 
you, Dutch art begins as soon as they stop. <laughs> but they are Dutch. They are very, very Dutch. And that's one of the things that, so all the collectors, the Mellons, the Wideners, you name it, all the way through, and it's not just National Gallery, it's the, the Mad San Francisco, Philadelphia, the Rijksmuseum, you name it. They, they sucked in what Fromentin was writing. That was for them what Dutch art was all about. And the fact that Golsius, Blumart, Uteval were not Dutch, they accepted that. And it took a long time. It took somebody like Wolfgang Steckow to say, oh no, no, wait a second, these people are Dutch. They belong here. And so recently, it is becoming, people are realizing, yes, this is part of this whole story. You can't exclude them, they're part of our story. And they're an amazing part of the story. They actually tell us so much about the Netherlands at that early period of the 17th century. Now that's Golsius, for example. Golsius, one of the great printmakers ever. He, he was in Harlem, he centered in Harlem, and so he did gods and goddesses, lots of gods and goddesses. Andromeda, there's a wonderful big uh, print of Andromeda and, and Perseus up there saving her from the dragon. Um, there you have Mars and Venus at this uh, next moment of their relationship when um, um, Vulcan, who was actually married to Venus, so this was part of the inconvenience of the whole relationship, um, <laughs> he finds out from Apollo what's going on, and so he crafts back here a little a mesh net, hides it over the bed, and at a certain moment, um, tells, you know, Mercury goes, tells all the gods around, hey, you gotta come watch this. And so he, that's the moment when Vulcan pulls back the net, and there the gods, there Mars and Venus caught in bed, and all the gods and goddesses come to laugh and, and, and joke at him. So that kind of story, that's the kind of thing that um, Golsius would be, the prince that he would be making. Um, he also illustrated um, books uh, from the that time, and one of the major, major books, I just want to focus on this a bit, is uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses. Ovid's Metamorphoses tells the stories of the lives of the gods, and all their foibles and all, their, all the kind of stories that we've been looking at, will be looking at, really have their basis in Ovid. And this is a, this is a scene that Golsius engraves of a small little book of uh, Ovid, Metamorphoses, all these were illustrated by artists like Golsius, and this is the golden age. This is the time before problems occurred. This is a time when people could live in harmony, they could love and joy and, and reach up to the sky and find fruit and, you know, uh, abundance and, and it was a wonderful, the moment we all dreamed that we could be living in. Imaginative, imagine, thinking of the imagination, what would that be like? What would that be like? Or Blumart, Abraham Blumart in Utrecht, exactly the same time as Uteval. Painting huge paintings of uh, altarpieces, of the uh, adoration of the shepherds. This painting I only uh, show you, but uh, because it is at the National Gallery in Washington, uh, sort of, um, it is actually in a wonderful painting by Peter Sonradam on the high altar of a church of St. Jan's and Sir Togenbar. So if you go to the, look at a Dutch interior, see, see uh, the um, Sonradam painting, that painting is on the high altar. Uh, it's now in the Louvre. Or prints made 
in Harlem. So he's a painter in Utrecht, but he has a lot of compositions made in the prints in Goldsius's workshop in Harlem. So this is the Annunciations of the Shepherds, a print made in Harlem with Goldsius's workshop. So Ut, both Bautevec, I mean, Blumart and, and Goldsius have a relationship. Harlem, Utrecht, they're all kind of intertwined in these two great centers of artistic activity at the beginning of the 17th century. So there's our friend uh, Jakob Uteval again, and there's his wife, and we've talked about him and his coat of arms and his little red paint. And there she is, beautiful, very attractive woman, nice little smile. You don't see that many smiles on Dutch ladies' faces while they're posing for portraits, but there she is. And she has beside her this wonderful little object, and that little object is a balance, a balance, exactly the same kind of balance that we have in our Vermeer woman holding a balance. So it's the same thing. And that balance, and the, so the woman, the balance is standing in front of a last judgment. So it all has to do with balance. How does one conduct one's life? What kind of harmony do you have in your existence? These are the concerns. When somebody has an element like that, that has a, it's an object, it has a real function, but it has a symbolic language as well. It tells you something about that person, or about the meaning, or about the implications of that individual and how their view, worldview. And so the fact that she has, uh, Mrs. Uteval has a balance, says that she's thinking along the same lines of moral rectitude that you find in the, in the Vermeer painting. So we have them there in Utrecht. In Utrecht, this is a map of the Netherlands, and there is Utrecht right there, it's a province. Most of the art we know from the Netherlands is from the province of Holland. So there's Amsterdam and Harlem, um, Delft is down here, um, Utrecht is a separate province. This map is sort of interesting because it's got yellow for the Dutch Republic and blue for the Southern Netherlands. Now, in the 16th century, all this would have been blue because the, the Netherlands was under control of Spain, under the control of the Spanish Habsburgs. But during the late part of the 16th century and into the 17th century, the Dutch revolted against Spanish control. They did not like the whole Catholic thing. There are a lot of Catholics in the Netherlands, but there are a lot of the Calvinists and, and, and Protestants that they didn't want to be under the control of, of a foreign entity. It's very much like the American Revolution. They, we wanted, they wanted their independence to separate away. Um, a lot of it was religion, some of it was taxes. Um, there are all sorts of reasons that, that, in, that involved this revolt. Anyhow, the revolt didn't exactly work out, only worked out for the northern provinces. The southern provinces stayed under Spanish control. But the revolt was led by the Prince of Orange, William the Silent. And he was like their George Washington. He kind of led, the, united everybody, got uh, behind him, and he was a great leader who was assassinated before, in fact, the Dutch Republic was formed in 1584. His son, um, Prince Moritz, then became the Prince of Orange. And the time when Uteval was living and working, Prince Moritz was the Prince of Orange. And Prince, as I said, Uteval was very much a advocate, very strong advocate of the Prince of Orange in the whole 
internal, somewhat complicated politics of the Netherlands at that time. But anyhow, that was the leader of the military during the years when um, Uteval was working. Now, the, so there's the map of the Netherlands we just looked at. And this is a fascinating map that may, maybe some of you have seen before in other lectures I've given here, um, because it is a, a lion map. It's called the lion map. And the Dutch are always associated with the lion, the power and boldness of the lion. But it's really interesting to see that that lion is exactly in the shape of the Netherlands. So you can see it's exactly the same shape of the Netherlands. And inside that line, in fact, is a map. It's all the cities and waterways, and this is Outer Zee right here. So it is, an, it is based on reality, but it is allegory. And it's a great example to show how the Dutch could think about reality and yet think beyond that reality, to, to have abstract concepts. So the whole personification of the Netherlands then becomes a lion. And that lion is a happy lion. He's very content because he is being fed. His tongue is out lapping up the 12-year truce. At a certain point, everybody got tired of this revolt. And they cited 1621-22, they would have a truce. And so this is actually a political statement. This map is all about politics. That this, the artist who made this map said, I like peace. There's Mars, sound asleep, the god of war, sound asleep. There are cities being built. There are people traveling through the countrysides uh, on the horseback. There are people planting fields. And here is the harmony that comes from the two, the, the, the end of war. You have the, the two ladies side by side, the southern Netherlands and the northern Netherlands. So in harmony and peace together. So it's a very interesting how all-encompassing this whole question of the 12-year truce, peace, allegory, reality, all gets very intertwined. Oh, I'm sorry, I should have been showing you that. There's Mars, you can maybe see him better now. The cities, the tra traveling, here are the two ladies. And all around here are the maps of the, of the cities, uh, profiles of the cities, including Utrecht, which is right there. And there's the 12-year truce being fed. So that map uh, was from the northern Netherlands, but this is a fascinating painting in the Walters Art Collection, Art Museum. Um, it's, called, it's a collector's cabinet. It is a wonderful depiction of a kind of amazing collector that was being, that, was, uh, that existed at this time. Um, the most famous of these collectors was Rudolf II in Prague. But there are a lot of people who aspired to be that kind of a collector, to bring together all of the world's greatest natural treasures and man-made treasures and get a sense of the entirety of, of the world. And so you have a collector who is right here in his room with all of his paintings, um, his sculptures, his shells, his uh, coral, um, little decorative arts things, maps, gold, globes, every, you name it, flower, plants, flowers, um, everything, everything you would possibly wish to have. And he has as um, guests the regents of the southern Netherlands, so Albert and Isabella, uh, who are, that's Albert and Isabella, they are the people who were the, who negotiated with Prince Moritz to get the truce. 
And the idea of this painting is fascinating because on the floor, I hope you can make it out, on the floor there's a painting leaning up against a chair. And you, maybe you can see that in that chair you have all sorts of weird animals, monkeys and, and owls smashing paintings, smashing musical instruments, destroying the arts. And that was the time of the war. That was the time of iconoclasm. And the hope here is that with Albert and Isabella, peace and harmony will reign. And you'll have something more like this, where you have Minerva and, 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 um, and fame coming to rescue the arts from evil. So you have this sense of, of an allegory here of peace, of aspirations and hopes for peace in this painting of the the artist, the collector, and all of the objects that he has brought together in his room. Now, in, on the left of that painting over here, you can see what is, for me, very important for this lecture, is that you have two people looking, holding a painting in their hand and looking at it, thinking about that painting, reflecting on what that painting is all about. Looking at the, the handling, the type of, the, the, the manner of way it's painted and all the kind of subjects. And so it could well be this, oops, sorry. It could well be this painting, something like that. We don't know what painting it is, but why couldn't it be? Those paintings are that size, it's exactly the same size. You could imagine them holding that painting and looking at it because it was beautiful, it was so incredibly refined, and it had a story. It had a story of mythology. You could think about all these people, who they are. You could incite the imagination to kind of let it go forth, but also learn from these stories. I mean, it could have been this painting, also small. Also small. Uteval's painting of the Golden Age. That wonderful time we saw in the Golcius print, where you have people reaching up for, for fruits and trees, mothers and children, and embracing beautiful kind of blues and greens and sort of evocative landscape of a different world, somehow a different kind of world that we all aspire to. Now this is, um, and just to remind you of that Golcius print, because there it is. And you can see Uteval clearly knew that print. So, here you have these figures embracing here. There they are in reverse in the painting. There you have mothers and child. I mean, you have one, you have these kind of little pockets of, of light around a tree mass on left or right. So you see that the whole way Uteval is thinking actually connects closely to what Golcius is doing in this prince. Clicks closely to Ovid and the metamorphoses. And in that story of the golden age, we actually go back to the politics of the time because surprisingly, when we think of the Dutch golden age, we, I've always thought of it as being 18th century looking back. Oh, that was the golden age. Look at how well, all the stuff they did. In fact, at the very beginning of the 17th century, exactly when Uteval is pending this painting, in the city histories of that day, when people are writing about the history of Harlem or Amsterdam or, or, or Utrecht, they are saying, we are entering into our golden age. This is a moment that we are, we could take charge of who we are. We've always been under the control of Spain. We always had a little swampy, morassy place, 
But with windmills, we can, we can dry the land, we can make it fertile, we can have build cities during the peace, we can do all these things to make this world what we hope it will be. We can go back to that ideal of the golden age that we have read about so often in books like Ovid's Metamorphoses. So a painting like this is in fact not just an aspiration to something else, it's a, it's a, it is a goal where we're trying to reach. It is associated. That painting is just not random. It has a connection to what the Dutch think of themselves and what they want to be. A little painting like that suddenly has a kind of a connected to a bigger world than, than we would have thought before. Now, that style, we're going to talk about style a bit, a little bit. Style of, and, and, uh, is, this, is a term that we really used, let's go back one moment. Whoops, I went forward, sorry. Um, so these elongated figures and very rhythmic uh, character of these forms the blues and uh, greens of that evoke that landscape are all character, stylistic characteristics that are representative of this period of art that we now have given this term mannerism, Dutch mannerism too. This is a term that is a, you know, a general all-purpose, one that I'm not thrilled about, but it exists, so we're going to have to use it, but it's, uh, it's more complicated than, than that one term would probably lead us to believe. But there it is. There, that mannerism comes out of Golsius, and Golsius, the, the moment when this all happens is this huge, this is actually a huge print that is made on three sheets of paper. Maybe you can, there's one there and one there. So three sheets of paper, it's a very large print that is of another marriage. This is the marriage of um, Cupid and Psyche. And we have the same thing here. It's a detail of that. You hear um, Hercules out there welcoming you once again in the same way that he was in the other marriage feast. You have Bacchus pouring um, wine. You have Ceres helping serve the, the, the party. The hard thing about mannerism to figure out what the heck the subject's all about because it's always hidden back there. Way over here is um, Cupid and there's Psyche, so they're there. But you need to work your way into it. You need to go in the kind of story, the kind of, that the mannerism lets, wants you, forces you to kind of become part of the scene. It becomes part of the action, get in there and move around and, and then say, oh, here I am. And then you find you're surrounded by all these gods and they're all doing these, you know, godlike things, which are maybe not necessarily always in our positive way, but you know, they're, they're doing it. Um, but these figures are all have to do with you know, musculature of Hercules. This elongated, beautiful, rendered figures, small heads and long proportioned bodies of the women. That style is something that Golsius didn't invent himself. He made this print on the basis of a drawing that my friend Carl von Mander, who we've been quoting, he was an art theorist, but he also traveled. And one of the places he went was the court of Rudolf II in Prague. And in Prague was a wonderful artist by the name of Bartholomew Spronger. And Spronger drew like this. And von Mander says, oh my gosh, what my friend Golsius, the greatest printmaker in the world, could do with your drawings is amazing. Let me take some of your drawings back to Harlem and sure enough, he did. And so then Golsius then starts 
making prints based on Spronger's drawings that then dictate in a certain way the whole character of Mannerist art in the Netherlands because everybody's looking at it. Everybody's looking at what Van Manders prints, uh, what they look like, and they are based on Spronger. And that's the same kind of thing that's on the wonderful little copper that is in the exhibition of the Pullian Shepherd. That's all Spronger. I mean, this kind of rhythmic quality of the women dancing the kind of, um, in the in the in the woods, the the, the rhythms of the of the trees, the figures. So this is this is a story out of Ovid again. A lot of stories in in Utavall come out of Ovid, because Ovid is so, you know, so rich with stories. But they all have a kind of interesting um, moral to them. There's all, they're, they're always seen. Or right, Fernanda writes about this Ovid moralise. What does the moral of these stories mean? So here you have these um, nymphs out in go, dancing around in the forest, having a great old time. And then this shepherd, this really dumb shepherd, comes by. Um, and that's the shepherd, and he, and they're, they're right by Pan's cave. That's Pan down for her. And, and he starts to say, starts to mock these nymphs. He starts, starts dancing around in funny ways, and, and they look at him, and they say, uh, they try to dance for bed, and he keeps mocking them, and they get a little pissed, and they say, hmm, it's just a shepherd, isn't it? Okay, well, so, um, let's get, deal with that one. So they change him into an olive tree. And you can see this is the moment then the, the leaves are, branches are sprouting from his hair. And so this is the, it's a, this moment of transformation. The, the mannerists love transformation, changing from one character to another and these stories. But this was a moral of this was that you don't make fun of people more important than you, at least not when they can hear you. <laughs> so, but anyway, so there is a kind of moral. So there are these little messages that are often conveyed in these, these paintings. But the, the allegory, I want to keep on the allegory side because this is really at the core of what I want to try to talk about today is the way these paintings relate to the Dutch world of the 17th century in which Uteval lived. So we've seen the, the line map down here. And in the exhibition there are four wonderful drawings that are all about the story of the Dutch Revolt. And there, there's, there's, there are four out of, of, I think, 12. But they were actually drawings meant for stained glass windows. So they were, they were a large commission for um, the story. And in that, so of the images that we have in the show, we have allegorical figures representing all of the issues that uh, were part of the Dutch revolt. And here you have the Dutch maiden. So the Netherlands becomes this young lady who is being accosted by persecution and a Catholic bishop. So Spanish thing. There you have the leader of the Spanish forces, the Duke of Alva, stomping on the Dutch maiden. Whoops. Um, and here in um, then in the sequence, you have Prince Moritz, the Prince of Orange, coming to the rescue of the Dutch maiden. And here you have the reconciliation of the north and the south, the two maidens. And that's exactly 
what we have in the lion map down there. So it's a fascinating thing that you have this whole story of the, you know, the, the reasons for the revolt, the kind of issues, the salvation and the reconciliation happening. This was done in 1612, um, so this was during the, during the 12-year truce, so it was before it ended, but they still, this is aspiration of what would happen, all tied into this political world. Now, it was only because of this series that I looked at this huge painting that welcomes you to the show, and I just wanted to show you this image in part to remind you of how small these little coppers are um, and how of a different scale, different order, and different magnitude uh, the fact that Udval could paint so well both scales is one of the amazing things that I think we can walk away from the show thinking about. Anyhow, so I was thinking about this incredible painting from the Louvre. This is from the Louvre. And this is all about the imagination. Of course, this is uh, one, one you can, um, you can, because of its scale, partly, you can sort of envision um, this beautiful woman, um, who is uh, chained up to this cliff amidst all of these skeleton scales and shells down here. Not having a good day. Um, she's been put there because her mother bragged that her mother bragged that she was the most beautiful woman in the world, and the nerds didn't like that. And so that if you're gonna kind of get back in good with the gods, then you've got to sacrifice your beautiful young daughter, Andromeda. So she does. And uh, then you have, up above, Perseus is out for a Sunday stroll or Sunday ride, um, cruising across the landscape in his uh, Pegasus and his favorite uh, flying horse, and um, looks down and sees his, the sculpture up there against the cliff, and he's then, this, uh, then he notices tears on her cheeks and wind blowing through her hair and he uh, says, oh my gosh, that's a real woman. And so then he springs into action and charges down to slay the um, terrible dragon um, as she looks up with the savior coming down. It's all, um, Pretty exciting, but you can you can engage, you can imagine yourself being drawn into this whole thing, and then you can also see Peg, um, Perseus seeing that she is actually standing on a pretty sexy shell, um, and so this evocative uh, conch shell that suggests that there is more than just external beauty to this woman. There is a lot of potential for a Mars-Venus type relationship going on. Um, and uh, they, um, she died, they do get married and it's also a very positive kind of thing. But if you think of this beyond that story um, out of mythology and then put it back into the context of the Dutch Republic, you can see this as being the Dutch maiden, Prince Moritz and Spain. A painting like this becomes, in fact, relevant to that time because of these associations that these people who saw all these different, the intertwining of reality and, 
and mythologies uh, and political and concurrent events in, in the world. This painting, I'm absolutely certain, was only painted because of those concerns that were going on. And that is... <laughs> that maybe was Perseus, I'm not sure. <laughs> so, it's interesting also to look at the, her pose with her arm up above her head like that and look at the Golseus prints so to see that there is thought that the connections to that Golseus print in the way Uteval has posed uh, Andromeda. But it's also interesting to look at Golseus' model for that figure in Spronger. This is a painting by Bartholomew Spronger from Utrecht, and there she is, exactly the same arm gesture up above, and this is a painting of Mars and Venus. So you have these, these intertwining of associations. That pose would have been known as a pose connected to Mars and Venus. It would have gone into Andromeda. So you have these whole kinds of things. Then you see the style. So you know the style, the elongated, beautiful proportions of this manner of style, um, and the way Uteval uses that in, in this uh, wonderful painting. The other thing that I, I don't have probably many opportunities in this lecture to get to this point, but I do want to emphasize it, that while these figures are, have these beautiful proportions, there is an element in this show, which is the, um, I find so fascinating, that there is incredible reality to elements of his compositions. The shells. Um, and you can see in still life elements in various paintings, the, the, the bread and the, and the cheese and the baskets, they're all, all the things that Fromentin liked about Dutch art are there. It's just that when you're doing mannerisms, when you're doing mythologies, this style is the style in which you do mythologies. It's the style in which you do times of the past that are different, that are ones to teach you lessons. It is, it is a very, it's not an overarching style for that whole period. It is specific to certain types of paintings, the ones we're looking at today, that I think um, is, to me, been fascinating to, to, to learn about in, uh, as I learn about this artist. So we go back to this wonderful painting of the, uh, from, Williams, from the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, where you have the wedding of Pales and Thetis. We've looked at that before. Um, and there, everybody gets invited to the party. It is a big blast. Everybody's come. Only one person gets excluded. And that is a lady by the name of Eris, who is the goddess of discord. And she decides this is something that she is going to not let pass without um, vengeance. And so she figures that the best way to get vengeance is to drop a golden apple in the middle of the party says, for the fairest. And so you have, of course, a lot of beautiful women there, and so who's going to be the one that will be the fairest? And so they find this, they think it's a shepherd, it turns out he's a little bit more complicated than that, but anyhow, a guy by the name of Paris. And so Paris has to make the judgment. Back here is the Paris, uh, the judgment of Paris. And so in another of Uteval's paintings, the, the Wedding feast is back here in the background. There's Eris up above. And here in the foreground now is the Judgment of Paris. 
Um, and you have here with little Cupid helping out, deciding that Venus is the, the most, the fairest of them all, better than the Minerva and Juno. Um, it is essentially the ultimate bad choice in life um, because she is married. Uh, her, uh, she, um, Venus promises the most beautiful woman in the world. They all, they all get bribes, and the bribe that, that Venus gives the most beautiful woman in the world, who happens to be Helen, who happens to be married, and the consequences of this lead into the Trojan War. So it's a famous story, often represented, but at this particular time, when the Dutch are trying to establish who they are, the Dutch Republic, this story takes on added significance because it means that in creating your society, creating who we are, we were never anything until now. And the Dutch at the beginning of the 17th century have to create a language, they have to create laws, they have to create a whole political structure um, to identify themselves. That what you cannot do in, in making the, that country a reality is exclude anybody. So this is an argument to include all elements of that society. Do not let somebody like Eris screw up our, our new utopia, our new golden age that we're all aspiring to, to have. So this painting ties in to that whole question of who is the Dutch Republic? How do we structure our society? What do we tell Prince Moritz when he is trying to figure out how this country should, should run? You have to remember the lessons of the, the marriage of Peleus and Thetis and the consequences of the judgment of Paris. And that also has consequences about what choices. How do you make choices? What is the choice? Central pleasure is not the optimum choice. And that is something that is emphasized by Uteval by objects. And this is fascinating to go through this show to look at, you know, goats. So goats are, are a symbol of unrestrained sexuality. And they're all over right there, you know, right there, as is the conch shell. Why on earth would you have a conch shell in the middle of this wooded area except to have its, its sexual implications of, of its shape and color and all of the elements that emphasize the sexuality, sensuality of the decision, uh, the reasons, the underlying reasons for that decision being made. And even our wonderful painting of Moses striking the rock seems to have kind of plucked out of the history of the Old Testament. Why on earth paint Moses striking the rock at this time? Well, I think it also has to do with politics because Moses led the, the Israelites through the, the wilderness and got to see the promised land but never actually was able to step into it. In the same way, the Prince of Orange led the Dutch Revolt, but was assassinated before the beginning of the Dutch Republic. So when you have a print that we saw before, uh, by Goltzius, of the Prince of Orange, you have around the sides these small vignettes, all associating the Prince of Orange with Moses. Is that, so I don't know if you can see right here, this, there you have um, the, the tablets and there you have the, the crossing of the Red Sea. All of these, each of these have some story connected to Moses. So allegorically, 
um, the Prince of Orange is associated with Moses. You see this over and over again in the stories of, uh, of the, the, that, uh, that great leader. These associations are there. So a choice to do the painting of Moses striking the rock ties into this political world of the Prince of Orange and his associations with Moses. So go back to our wonderful painting of Mars and Venus. Um, this too, turns out, has a connection to the, the, the whole question of politics. And something that I didn't, I've been struggling with this for a long time, what was, what could this painting mean? Well, it turns out this print by Goltzius, uh, or by one of Goltzius' students, Jakob Matham, has a text, or a couple of prints, with the same subject. There's Mars and Venus in bed. So the same people that we see in the Uteval painting. And the inscription below it reads, as soon as Mars had laid down his arms, he desired Venus. It is indeed a happy kingdom that is not ravaged by the chaos of war. Then existence is enriched with prosperity and the inhabitants are happy. And in fact, in the allegorical world of, uh, that inhabits this, this realm of the gods and goddesses, the, the offspring of Mars and Venus is a young woman by the name of Harmony. So in fact, this painting is all about, and painted in 1612, so uh, just about the time of the 12-year truce, is another demonstration of the positive elements of the truce, that Mars has dropped his arms, he's embracing Venus, the goddess of love, and out of that comes harmony. And that is, a, that is sort of wonderful, this little painting that it would have. So probably people in those collector's cabinets looking at this painting, or paintings like this, would be able to see and think about these kinds of stories. Now, that may explain why Mars and Venus are right here in the middle of this, this wedding feast. They're not here doing anything wrong, they are representing harmony in a way. I mean, so the whole thing starts to you rethink about uh, Mars and Venus, because this is the image we have of Mars and Venus in the show that is the most um, powerful, is Mars and Venus in bed. Um, and the whole uh, very incredibly sexual kind of painting that um, is a, an image that um, has been actually, interestingly, hidden from public. People, museums never exhibited this painting um, until just recently. I mean, this was the kind of thing that were, they were hidden away in private quarters because they were um, seen as, you know, we didn't want to taint our sensitive eyes. But in fact, they, and so they are. This, this is Udafal playing with this whole sense of, of, of fun and games and, and, and stories out of mythology where you have you know, based on the, the Golcius print um, that we saw before, the, the same kind of image of, of, of Vulcan back here crafting his uh, net. Here he is, um, uh, uh, Apollo has, has seen him, uh, Mercury has uh, told all the gods to come around and see what's gonna happen, and here we had a moment of Vulcan's pulling back the net, and we have them um, being exposed in bed um, I must say, Venus looks 
utterly bored by the whole thing. I never quite understand this, but it's just like, it's, oh, not again, kind of. <laughs> but anyhow, where did all these people come in a bedroom? But anyhow, it's all there to make fun of them. This was, this was, and this is sort of interesting because Van Mander writes about this. He writes about these paintings, and they are collected by um, people Van Mander knows. They are major collectors. They are interested in decorative arts, and I have a thing that these small, delicate things are very much in the mentality of people working in and collecting and making decorative arts, sculptures and things, that he's, he writes about this explicitly, he says this is a, a warning that you should leave, lead an upright life, an untainted life, because the gods will always see what you've been doing and it'll be exposed to the world. So in fact, this had a very, it was not a political warning, a political concern, it, but it had a, um, it had a moral, um, how one behaves, and I want to go back to Mrs. Uteval, because that's exactly the other message that comes out of this incredible world of the Utevals living in Utrecht at this time, that, that there is the sense of the, the moral kind of code that underlies everything else. That that is, that is part of what um, this, this is all about. This is the, this is the under, underlying element. But it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the stories. It can't, doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the imaginative evocation, ev evocativeness of these stories or the, the, the kind of humor of them, the kind of laughing at situations. This is all part of the incredible balancing act that this great artist, Joachim Utwell, manages to pull together in his works that I think we can enjoy in this quite remarkable exhibition. So thank you all very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 